Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 247, Our Wooden Wall. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for only about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Claire, Tim, and Paul for signing up already. The Danes encamped at Bridge North had been campaigning for years. Many had come here with Haston and the Appledore fleet. They were veterans of the Continental Campaigns. And for years now, they had been fighting tooth and nail with the Anglo-Saxons. But despite all the time they had spent here, despite their massive numbers, their surprise marches, their end runs, their seizure of territory, despite the fact that they had made allies with and campaigned alongside the kingdoms of Northumbria and East Anglia, despite all of that, they had practically nothing to show for their efforts. And in 896, what remained of the once great raiding army was stuck at Bridge North, trying to determine what to do next. Summer was fast approaching. They were in campaigning season now. But the gods were not with them. And their Northumbrian and East Anglian allies were now returning home back to their own kingdoms. They had enough. And as for the wealthier raiders, those who had the means to be able to establish themselves, many of them decided to march along with them. They would make new lives in what would become known as the Dane Law. But as for the rest, those who didn't have wealth or prestigious friends, those who had gone a Viking to find their fortune, those who may have even abandoned their previous lives in Wessex and Mercia, don't forget that these armies were often cosmopolitan. Well, they didn't have the option of just giving up and becoming Northumbrian or East Anglian landlords. They had joined this campaign to become rich. But currently, they were still little more than homeless bandits. So an unknown leader named Hunk Deus decided to take control of the situation. He declared that their fight wasn't over yet. They would board what few ships remained. They would cross the channel. They would sail up the Seine. And there, they would find the wealth that they all desired. I don't know how much hope this army had. But when they first came here, they had over 300 ships. They had resources. They had allies. They had horses. And throughout their entire campaign in Britain, they were continually gaining reinforcements, bolstering their numbers. The group that had first come to Britain was a gargantuan force that likely totaled more than 350 ships' crews, many of which were on horseback. But what was leaving was a force that could now comfortably fit on just five ships. When we talk about breaking an army, we often use the term decimation. It's an old term from the Roman era. To decimate a force means to lose one in ten soldiers. It literally means to lose a tenth. That's not what happened to the Scandinavian invasion fleet. In fact, what happened to Haston's army is what we mistakenly think decimation means. The loss of all but a tenth of the army. Except in this case, the remains of Haston's army was even less than that. Setting out for one final campaign on the Seine 
was only 1.5% of the original force that landed at Appledore and the Thames. Alfred had all but annihilated them. His use of the Firds of Wessex and Mercia and the building of defensive infrastructure had changed the course of British history. But he wasn't working alone. What the accounts of the scribes often leave out or downplay is how big a role was played by the Elderman and Alfred's own son, Edward. It was the Elderman who were out there conducting diplomacy and turning potential allies into enemies for the Danes. For many of the pivotal battles, it was the Elderman and Edward who were leading the armies in the field, chasing Haston and his allies from place to place. Throughout this war, we have been seeing Eldermen fighting the Danes far beyond the boundaries of their own shires. Under Alfred, the defense of the realm had become a kingdom-wide affair. No longer were the West Saxons only concerned with me and mine. By the end of the war, we see evidence that Alfred's vision had won out, and the Eldermen were correctly seeing that a threat to one was a threat to all, and were acting accordingly. So make no mistake about it, Alfred certainly did fight this war wisely, and his realignment of the focus of the Eldermen towards the larger health of the kingdom as a whole was pivotal. But he was by no means fighting alone. The scribes laid this achievement at Alfred and God's feet. But there were a lot of people who earned this victory, and it hadn't come without a cost. In the fighting, the bishops of Rochester and Dorchester, the eldermen of Kent, Essex, and Hampshire, the governor of Winchester, many kings' thanes, and many more lesser-ranked people lost their lives in the fighting and the disease that ravaged their camps. And one disease in particular comes up in the scribe's account. They call it the disease of the cattle. And though it's unclear what exactly they were referring to, given the realities of siege warfare, it's possible that disease, including the disease of the cattle, killed as many Anglo-Saxons and Danes as did weapons of war. This had been a brutal war. But at last, the Scandinavian army had vacated Alfred's lands. They could finally breathe a sigh of relief. And then, East Anglia and Northumbria attacked. Yeah. Apparently, Elderman Athelnoth's diplomatic talks with Northumbria had broken down, and that meant that Wessex was once again at war. And they just couldn't catch a break. In the reign of Alfred's grandfather, Egbert, they had multiple upheavals, including King Egbert being chased into exile by King Offa, and he likely only made it back on the throne thanks to some careful alliances with Charlemagne and possibly even the Pope. His was not a placid rule. The reign of Alfred's father was marred by fights with the Vikings and even a small insurrection led by his own son. And all of Alfred's brothers met suspiciously untimely deaths while surrounded by Danish invasions. And as for Alfred, despite his efforts at focusing upon scholarship and infrastructure, he had to spend large portions of his reign at war. And it's starting to look like every time he defeats one army... Another army or two was tagging in to take its place. Wessex had been under siege for generations, and apparently it wasn't over yet. All along the coasts, fleets of Northumbrian and East Anglian raiders were striking where they could. And this really shouldn't be much of a surprise. 
Britain had been racked with lawlessness for years, and that sort of chaos wasn't going to vanish overnight simply because the Danes had left. The system had broken down. Normalcy had broken down. And just because the Danes weren't here didn't mean that all the bandits and pirates that were springing up in their wake were going to just go and take up farming. It takes time and effort to reestablish normal daily life. And honestly, sometimes there are just people who don't want to go back to normal life. So we're told of Northumbrian and East Anglian raiders striking the south. And that meant that any ships on the sea, any seaside ports and villages, and even any remaining undefended settlements near rivers were now at risk. But I'm doubtful that it would have just been Northumbrians and East Anglians who were out there raiding. Life in Britain had been tossed into a blender. Many would have been uprooted. Others would have lost everything and everyone. Stability was in very short supply. And I'm sure there were opportunists from all over who thought that now was their chance of getting a piece of the loot. Especially since these pirates had discovered an undefended flank in Fortress Wessex. The West Saxons had constructed a massive defense against invasion. And it had proven to be extremely effective for that purpose. But as for small raiding bands that could slip past the burrs and hit small settlements or fleets of pirates patrolling the coast looking for undefended trading ships. Well, Alfred's new defenses weren't equipped to handle that. And these pirates were exploiting that weakness with wild abandon. And here's what the scribes tell us of Alfred's response. Quote, Then King Alfred gave orders for building longships against the Esks, which were full nigh twice as long as the others. Some had 60 oars, some more and they were both swifter and steadier, and also higher than the others. They were not shaped either after the Frisian or the Danish model, but so as he himself thought that they might be most serviceable." End quote. This entry is from 896, and it's important for a reason that you probably don't expect. That entry is actually the basis for one of the most popular myths about Alfred, that he was the father of the Royal Navy. He was the first person to create what Britain has long referred to as our wooden wall. This belief is so common that if you were familiar with Alfred the Great before this series, chances are you knew three things about him. That he was the first king of England, that he burned some cakes, and that he founded the Royal Navy. And literally none of these things are true. All three are mythological. But the idea that Alfred founded the Royal Navy is a remarkably durable belief. It's held so deeply that even Americans have attached to it, with the very first flagship of the Continental Army being named the Alfred. And it actually retained that name even after it was captured by the British. Furthermore, the Royal Navy back in the 20th century christened one of its battlecruisers the HMS Alfred in honor of the father of the Royal Navy. We didn't just have this myth. We've been running with it for centuries. But you all know that Wessex have been fighting naval battles for ages. You'll even remember that the crown prince Athelstan, who was Alfred's eldest brother, earned praise by the scribes for defeating a Vikinger fleet in a naval battle off the coast of Sandwich 45 years earlier. And Alfred had fought in at least one naval battle himself. The one that we know about was about 12 years earlier, in 884. So Wessex had a navy, and Alfred didn't invent it. What he did do, though, was add ships to it. 
And according to the scribes, he designed those ships himself. And based on what the scribes tell us, for Alfred, bigger was better. These West Saxon ships were going to be gargantuan when compared with the long ships operated by the pirates. At 60 plus oars, they would have been twice the size of a typical longship used to go a Viking. And the scribes tell us that these weren't just bigger, they were also faster, steadier, and rode higher in the water. Now we don't have pictures of these things, but think this through with me. For something to ride higher in the water while also being more steady, it's likely that it would need to be wider than a normal longship which makes sense because it would need to accommodate all those extra oars. But longships were pretty much on the cutting edge of shallow drafts. And because of the increased size and weight, Alfred's ships would have had to have displaced more water. So while they might have been big and fast, I find it hard to believe that they would have been more maneuverable. I mean, maybe he found a way to compensate for the additional size and weight with additional rowers and thus give him the speed that he was after. But maneuverability... Let's stick a pin in that one. Anyway, the intent of these ships was clear. Alfred wanted ships that could outmatch anything that they encountered at sea. And his shipwrights went to work constructing them as quickly as possible. By the end of summer, at least a portion of these ships were seaworthy, and they were loaded up with a complement of Anglo-Saxon and Frisian sailors. And the fact that the Frisians were included in this makes me wonder how many West Saxon sailors were initially on hand. They might have needed mercs. I don't know. But whatever the case, they set out to defend the southern coasts of Wessex. And they didn't need to go far. The Chronicle hints at a series of brutal naval engagements for that year. And they resulted in the loss of, quote, no less than 20 ships and the men with all on the southern coast, end quote. So 896, which should have been a year that marked the long-awaited triumph over the Danish invasion, was instead a year of naval warfare. The scribes don't tell us about all these battles that happened. They don't even tell us whose ships were actually destroyed. So we have huge gaps in what actually occurred on this year. But, thankfully, they did provide us with a detailed account of one of the battles that happened. We're told of a fleet of six ships that have been wrecking havoc upon a whole swath of territory from the Isle of Wight all the way down to Devon. And nine ships from the new West Saxon fleet sailed to intercept them at the mouth of an unnamed river. The pirate longships were now trapped on the river, blockaded from the ocean by Alfred's new titanic ships. In response, half of the Vikinger fleet simply beached their longships, went ashore, and began to raid the surrounding area for supplies. But the other half must have realized how much trouble they were in. My guess is that they suspected that this was only the first part of a multi-unit attack, and that the Royal Ferd would soon be approaching by land. So the other half of the Vikinger fleet did the only sensible thing that they could think of. They tried to break through the West Saxon lines. However, sending three ships against nine far larger ships isn't a very good bet under any circumstances. And as the long ships approached, the West Saxon and Frisians launched any missile weapons they had on hand at the approaching pirates and then they moved their ships in to intercept. They readied their hooks and lines, and once they were in range, hurled them at the approaching longships, lashing the fleeing ships to their own. Two of the three ships were immediately caught and pulled in close to the West Saxons. 
and once they were fully lashed in, the West Saxon Frisian crew boarded the longships and killed everyone on board. It was a massacre. As for the third ship, it managed to avoid the hooks being hurled at it by the approaching West Saxon ships, but they weren't out of danger yet. They were still being pursued and were still under heavy fire. Members of the crew were dying left and right. Their numbers were dwindling. And so the captain of the ship made a desperate decision. He took his longship into the shallows, hoping that his ship's shallow draft would allow him to just skim across the rocks and silt and reach the open ocean. It worked. Turning back, he saw the pursuing West Saxon fleet, ships that were far larger than his, slam into those same shallows and grind into a halt. The Vikinger captain had lost most of his crew. Only five of them remained. But they had escaped, thanks to their ship's superior maneuverability. Meanwhile, the West Saxon fleet could do little more than watch and hope that the tide would lift their ships off the rocks quickly. After all, there were three other ships that needed to be dealt with along the mouth of the river. And to make matters worse, during the skirmish, the West Saxon fleet got disorganized, and three of their ships ended up getting beached right next to the remaining raiders' longships. And the rest of the fleet had been beached on the opposite shore, so they were unable to provide any assistance. Those three West Saxon ships were on their own. Alfred's design had failed to pay attention to maneuverability, and that failure was proving to be quite a deficit for the fleet. But Alfred's ships were bigger than the Northumbrian East Anglian longships, and so they carried larger crews. And consequently, even though three of Alfred's ships had been unexpectedly beached right next to the pirates, I'm sure that those same pirates knew that launching a direct assault wouldn't be in their favor. They were certain to be outnumbered. However, setting sail and potentially facing off with all nine ships once out at sea was even worse of a deal. So they decided to chance it. They locked their shields and marched as best as they could through the water towards the West Saxon ships. They were probably dealing with water at least up to their knees, and it was quite likely higher in places. But this was still their best shot, and so they continued their advance. The West Saxon Frisian crew realized what was happening and poured out of their ships to meet them in battle. And what followed was a brutal and likely chaotic melee. The pirates, terribly outnumbered, immediately started to lose ground as their crew were getting cut down. But they didn't go quietly. While 120 of the raiders were cut down in the melee, they killed 62 West Saxon Frisian sailors, along with a reeve and a member of Alfred's own household. Considering how few sailors would have been involved in the fighting, this was a bloodbath. We're probably looking at around a third of the West Saxon forces getting cut down, and far more of the raiders. They practically lost their entire force. And incurring that degree of casualties would have taken time. This battle would have continued for a while. And in that time, the tide was rising, and the pirates noticed it. Suddenly, they abandoned their fight and raced for their ships. Because of their longship's shallow drafts, they were able to row right past the mighty fleet of Alfred. And all the West Saxon fleet could do was watch from their still-beached ships. All three longships escaped. But it wasn't all good news for the pirates. 
Once at sea, the losses that they had suffered in battle came back to bite them. A ship requires a certain crew size to effectively man it, especially in open seas. You need people to handle the sail, to tie things, to untie other things, to do all the stuff that you have to do on long ships. I mean, I'm not a sailor, but I imagine that about 95% of sailing involves knots and singing. The point being here, though, that there's a lot that needs to be done on a long ship, and their three ships had less than even a skeleton crew. One of them was lucky. One of them was able to limp back to East Anglia. But as for the other two, their crews were too small. They were too wounded. And consequently, they were driven ashore by the channel wind. They were shipwrecked. And almost immediately, they were captured and taken to Winchester. To Alfred's capital. To the king who was famous for doing godly work and granting clemency to his captured enemies. Even when those same enemies were oathbreakers. They were being taken to Alfred the Merciful. And once they arrived, they were hanged. Apparently, even Alfred had his limits. And on his orders, Wessex continued their fight to secure the coasts of the kingdom. And it worked. But Alfred didn't invent our wooden wall. And his ship design clearly wasn't as wonderful as the scribes claimed. If anything, the story of this battle was of Wessex defeating a Vikinger fleet despite the design of Alfred's ships. Their lack of maneuverability was a huge design flaw. But the fight for the coasts continued, and following this year of naval conflict, at last the fighting was over. The Danes had fled. The pirates from East Anglia, Northumbria, and from God knows where else were finally driven off. Alfred at last, could rule in peace. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast, and you can join all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>